Well, I'm glad to see all those who made it out in the snow. Uh, we ended up having a nice free afternoon because we had activities with all of our kids for soccer, and that's all been canceled. And so we've got a nice free afternoon because of the snow today. Well, we're going to continue on in our series here that we've been working through in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 12. And this is a section of Scripture that every time I read it, particularly verses 10 and 11, I laugh. Now, I'm not sure if the actual incident was that amusing, uh, particularly if you were Lazarus in the situation. But the fact that this event that I always laugh at every time I read it happened 2,000 years ago. And also happened 10,750 kilometers away from Vancouver, I can safely read it and chuckle every time. You see, what happens in the story is that after Lazarus has been dead for four days, and Jesus comes to the town of Bethany, and to everyone's astonishment, Jesus comes to the cave where Lazarus has been buried, asks them to roll the stone away. Everybody plugs their noses because they're expecting a stench to come out. But instead, Jesus just shouts for Lazarus to come out. And with all of the garments that he was buried in wrapped around him, he comes walking out, now alive, in front of everyone. And then in chapter 12, we read of Jesus now later coming back to the same town. And it says, six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived at Bethany. The home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. And as you'd expect, when Jesus comes back, everybody flocks to see him. I mean, here's a man who just raised someone from the dead a little bit earlier. Of course, you're going to want to catch a glimpse of this grave robber. And so people just start pouring where Jesus is, not to mention the fact that people have been pestering Lazarus ever since he's been brought back to life. People have been talking to him. People have been prodding him. People have been poking him like Lazarus is some kind of exhibit at a freak show. We read, when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him. And to see Lazarus, of course, you would want to too, the man that Jesus raised from the dead. And then here comes the funny part, the part that I laugh at every time I read it. We then go on to read, then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. Now, I didn't hear a single laugh. When I read that. So maybe i got to explain it a little bit. But, but this, when you think about it, this has got to suck. I mean, if you're Lazarus, you've just been brought back to life. You haven't even had time to write your bestseller, 90 Hours in Heaven. And people want to kill you. I mean, that's got to be a terrible situation. Personally, I'm not interested in being raised from the dead so that somebody could murder me. Lazarus now has got a price on his head. People want to take him out. I cannot fathom how frustrating that would be. 
I was just dead, and now Jesus brought me alive, and now people want to kill me. But usually, we don't have any control over our circumstances. Just like Lazarus had no control over being brought back to life. Even when we get what we want, we can discover many times that it comes with a price. And sometimes it even comes with what is not very good for us. I'm currently reading the autobiography of Brian Welch. He is the guitar player from a band called Korn. He uh, talks about, as a child, always wanting to be a rock star. And then in his biography, he talks about how when it actually happened, the pressure to stay on top, the scrutiny of the media, the temptation of the parties, the loneliness of travel, led him and his band into drugs and into alcohol and into infighting, depression, anxiety, attempted suicide, and even unfaithfulness. It's a fascinating story because uh, Brian Welsh ends up later on becoming a Christian and tells the story of how God intervened in his life, but the beginning stages of the story, he gets the very thing that he's always wanted as a kid. And when it happens, he recognizes the price that comes with it. We can read the story of Hezekiah and what happened to him after God healed him. Doesn't always work out the best. In many ways, it might have been in Hezekiah's situation better for him to not been given those extra years. Now, we don't know what happened to Lazarus after he was brought back to life. But one thing I can guarantee is that certain parts of his life got worse. One tradition says that Lazarus was later put out to sea in a vessel without sails, oars, or helm by Jews hostile to Christianity. Somehow, Lazarus survived that situation and was eventually imprisoned by Emperor Demetrian in his persecutions and finally was brought before him and beheaded. Now, had Lazarus known this, if this is what happened to Lazarus, he, he might have just chosen to stay dead. If he was given the choice, okay, Jesus is going to come, he's going to bring you back from the dead, but when he brings you back from the dead, a bunch of the religious leaders are going to want to kill you again, and then you're going to be set out on a vessel off to sea that hopefully you'll starve to death. Somehow you're going to survive it, but then you're going to be brought before the emperor and your head's going to be chopped off. So... You want to come back to life? If you knew all of that ahead of time, he might have just said, no, I'm comfortable where I am. But see, Lazarus didn't have a choice. Jesus didn't come before the tomb and say, Lazarus, do you want to come out? He gave a command and said, Lazarus, come out. He went, Lazarus, from being a fairly obscure individual, living a quiet, humble life, to instant celebrity, because Jesus got involved. But with it, he said goodbye to his private life, 
goodbye to safety, goodbye to quietness, and goodbye to neutrality. It reminds me of that wonderful line in Lord of the Rings where the hobbit Frodo is complaining about the time that he was born into. And he's complaining to the wise wizard Gandalf. Why did I have to be born now? Why in this circumstance? Why in this situation? And this is what we read. I wish it need not have happened in my time. All of this, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. None of you chose to be born now. None of you chose those who went before us. None of them chose either. But we can choose what to do with the time that we're in. We can choose what to do with our circumstances. When Lazarus was brought back to life, he didn't choose it, but he could now choose what to do with it. That's really the only thing that we have in front of us that we can choose. And today we're going to look at one woman who made up her mind as what to do with her time and her circumstance and chose well. It's Lazarus' sister by the name of Mary. As the people were trying to see Lazarus and speak to him and touch him and hear him and some even there to kill him, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, were preparing a dinner in honor of Jesus. And you could understand why. Guys just brought your brother back to life. At least you can give him his supper. So as they're preparing this meal, Mary goes one step further. One step beyond just preparing a meal to honor Jesus. In fact, what Mary does is goes to a fanatical an inappropriate extreme level to show her commitment to Jesus. So in John chapter 12, in verse 1, we read, Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served... And Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. Now, I'm not a perfume expert. I don't even wear cologne. But I do know how the stuff works. All you need with perfume is a little bit 
You just have to dab on a little bit on your neck, on your wrist. So when I read this passage, there's a couple of things that just jump out at me right away. A couple of words. First, we read 12-ounce jar. Now, a 12-ounce jar is half a liter, a pint, roughly around that amount. We also read the word expensive. And then we read poured. Some translations say anointed, but they essentially mean the same thing. If anybody knows how they anointed kings, they didn't put a dab of oil on the king's forehead. They poured the oil on the head of the king. So when you put all this together, Mary is pouring essentially half a liter of expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiping it up with her hair. Now, maybe to give you a little bit of perspective on this, I don't usually reveal what I buy my wife for Christmas to the entire congregation. But this Christmas, it, it just fits so perfectly. And she gave me a permission to, to do that. So, my wife's favorite perfume is a brand called Hypnotic Poison, which, that is a very cool name, I have to admit. Now, Hypnotic Poison, what you're seeing right there, you, you can buy 100 milliliters of this stuff at Hudson Bay for $150. Now, before you think my wife is totally extravagant, I have to admit that one bottle of that lasts her usually about five years. But still, 150 bucks for 100 milliliters of this hypnotic poison. So then I started calculating this into the passage that I was reading today, and I was saying, okay, so Mary poured half a liter on Jesus' feet. So that's five of these hypnotic poisons. That's that's 750 bucks. That's 25 years worth of perfume for my wife. And Mary comes and just pours it on Jesus' feet. Now, if my wife, if I bought that for her at Christmas and she just started pouring it on her, first of all, I would say that smells terrible. And secondly, I'd be like, why? Do you know how much I paid for that? And then Mary does something that would be extremely awkward. And it would be extremely awkward not only in our culture, but in her culture also, as no respectable woman in that culture would let their hair down outside of the house. Not only does Mary let her hair down, but then she takes her hair and she starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, rubbing this perfume into his feet. It, it can almost be interpreted, and maybe even was by some in the setting, as an uncomfortable, erotic situation. I mean, what is going on? Everything about the situation is wrong. You don't use perfume like this. You don't let your hair down like this. And you don't wipe a teacher's feet like that. The expense, the waste, the embarrassment, the, the, the possible interpretive eroticism going on. 
And then when I read on, I realize that the hypnotic poison perfume that I buy my wife is actually a cheap perfume. It's only $750 for half a liter of it. Look what the script says here. How much the perfume that Mary poured on Jesus' feet was worth. Verse 6, Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray Jesus, said, that perfume was worth a year's wage. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. A year's wage. I, I, I don't know what a year's wage is for you. I don't know what an average year's wage uh, would have been back then. But could you imagine fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollar bottle of perfume? And then just dumping the whole thing? You got us out. Where did Mary even get her hands on perfume like that? And let's be honest, Judas is the guy that makes the most sense in the story. If we didn't have that little tag on in there about him being a thief and we already know that he betrays Jesus, if we didn't know that insider information about Jesus and we just heard Judas's question, he's the guy you want on your finance committee. He's the one that makes the most sense in this story. He even uses his ultra-spiritual tone and brings up that money could have been used for the poor, you know. It's like the person who criticizes anything the church buys by saying, you know, there are starving children in Africa. Uh, not that uh, that person necessarily is going to send any money to missionaries or children in Africa themselves, but it certainly sounds very spiritual. We could use that money for the poor. So I get Judas. When, when I was talking to Pastor Joe about this Sunday, and we were talking about Chinese New Year, and he asked me if he could put up just a few decorations just to acknowledge the Chinese New Year, and you'll see some of these firecrackers, they call them, in the back and in the front. And, and, and Joe came up to me and said, could I just get a few decorations? The first thing I said to him was, yeah, yeah you sure can, but don't spend too much money. I mean, I get that. I get Judas. Yeah, don't spend too much money. The tension between worshiping God with art and beauty and quality and extravagance and taking care of the poor has always been a tension in the church that we've never quite reconciled. On our family holidays just a couple of months ago, we went throughout Europe and went to a number of cathedrals to the point where the, my kids couldn't even take it. Not another church, Dad. How many cathedrals does this place have? You go, cathedral. And if any of you have been around um, any of these places in Europe and that, they're overwhelming. You, you don't even know where to start looking and stop looking. There's just stuff everywhere. Beautiful paintings, 
mosaics, stained glass, high vaulted ceilings that go back hundreds of years, buildings whose original architects didn't even live long enough to see their buildings complete. And they knew when they designed these places that they wouldn't see them completed. They saw into future generations that these things would start and would be finished in 100, 150 years past them. They're ways to worship God and tell God's story in stone and marble and wood and paper with some of the greatest and most brilliant thinkers, designers, and artists that Europe has ever produced to create because God has designed us to be creative people. When you walk into some of these cathedrals, there's a sense of transcendence and awe that comes over you when you realize that I'm standing in the same place with many of God's followers in the past that also stood here and worshipped him as well. And yet... You can also stand in the same place and go, but the cost, the extravagance, the waste of money, isn't it a bit over the top? There's so much you can't even take it in. And then you read in history about the masses of poor, the beggars, the sick. Sometimes when these mass cathedrals were going up, the orphans lying on the streets just outside of these mass places. And you think, is this really the best way the money could have been spent? I totally understand, Judas. The 4th century uh, bishop of Milan, St. Ambrose decided to melt down all the liturgical furnishings in his churches and use them as ransom to buy back some of the people from the congregations that he was the bishop that had been captured by the Goths. And he melted down all of these different things and used that to, to buy back the people from his congregation, many of the poor people. And he said, if the church has gold, it is not to protect it, but to give the gold to those in need. And yet, if Ambrose just pays off the Goths by using all of the gold, wouldn't the Goths just keep kidnapping the Christians? I mean, isn't that the very reason why our governments today don't pay terrorists when they capture people? Because that kind of encourages them to do it all the more if we just pay them every single time. There's a tension between all of this. We mentioned that 20 years ago we had our first service in this building. And I wonder uh, those that went before us, those that put up the building that we are currently worshiping in, how they worked through some of this themselves. Because uh, you can't deny it's a beautiful building. It's a beautiful building. Why didn't they just put up a square box as plain as could be and give all the rest to the poor? Or was it because they wanted to create a place that has an atmosphere to it in which people can come in and worship God and we can sense in some ways his awe and his transcendence to give a visual stamp to the community around us that this is a place where people worship the God of the Bible? 
So it's the tension that the church will continue to live with. Evaluating today's story is a little bit easier because it gives us what we often don't have, and that is the motives. See, in a lot of these situations, we don't know the motive that was driving either these cathedrals that were being built, worship of God, or, or, or was it just pride and arrogance and giving to the poor and how to balance all that? In today's story, it becomes more obvious because it says that Judas asked the question, not because he actually was concerned for the poor, but because he was a thief. And that he would dip into the money pot as treasurer. Just, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but this is a total aside. I try not to do this in sermons, but I had a dream this week that uh, it was Sunday night. I had this dream that Christine was stealing, she's our treasurer, was stealing money from the church. And Harv and I had to sit down with Christine and fire her. And I, sorry, just, that just thought just came into my mind. But, but no, Christine is not a Judas treasurer stealing money from the church. But I, I, yeah, it was a weird dream I had Sunday night. So anyway, back on that. But Judas, that's what he was doing. He was stealing from the disciples. And so he was saying this. Shouldn't that money be given to the poor? But Judas did not care for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he stole some for himself. But as for Mary, we then read Jesus' response. And so we hear and read Mary and where her heart was at as well. Jesus replied to Judas, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Like the high priest Caiaphas, what Mary did was to go far beyond what she understood. When Caiaphas said, it is better for one man to die than for this whole nation to perish, in his heart, his motive, simply wanting to kill Jesus, not realizing that God then used his very words to be a prophecy of what Jesus had come to do. In many ways, Mary acts beyond her understanding. It's Almost inconceivable to think that Mary, in the actual act of doing that, was thinking in her mind, I'm doing this to prepare Jesus for his burial. Now, Jesus at this point would have been in his 30s. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. They're having this meal in honor of Jesus. It seems Weird for Mary to think, yeah, Jesus is probably going to die right away, and so I should prepare him for his burial. Plus, you usually don't anoint people before they're dead in preparation for their burial. Mary, most likely, is simply in absolute awe and love and even an element of worship of Jesus. Because of who Jesus seems to be and what he has just done in raising her brother. 
But the very act that she does goes beyond even her understanding and becomes a symbol of Jesus' preparation for burial. Mary would not have understood all this. Because not even Jesus' disciples really got it all until after his resurrection. But certainly God orchestrates things even beyond our own understanding to tell his story. That even if she didn't understand that Jesus' death was coming soon, she already was showing the world that this is the anointed one. This is the one that God has sent, as Caiaphas prophesied, to die as our king and our redeemer to save people from being lost. And so in an act of just utter love, love that even goes beyond understanding as love so often does, she played a bigger role than she even understood and she just poured out her worship. Again, Frodo said to Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Why did I have to be born in this? So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Tolkien wrote these words just a year or two before the outbreak of World War II. You can understand how appropriate they even are for that context and that situation for those that were living at that time. Why did I have to live? Why did I have to be born in a time such as this? These words of Frodo have been repeated so many times throughout history. Could you imagine if you would have been born during the Black Death? Wiping out almost one-third of all of Europe. The Hundred Years' War. Hundred years of Christians killing Christians over and over again. And, and could you imagine if you lived in during that time? People thought they were lucky and blessed if they made it to their 30th birthday. Or during the American Civil War, or World War I, or people who lived through the Cold War, where you got instructions at school each day on how to hide under your desk as if a nuclear bomb went off that hiding under your desk would actually save you. The fear or lived during the time of the Goths, or the Huns, or the Turks, or the fall of Rome, or the Crusades, or on and on I could go. When I have young couples come into my office planning to get married, and they say to me, you know what, we're thinking of getting married, but we just don't know if we want to have kids in a time like this. And I go, what are you talking about? You don't want to have kids in 2018 Canada? Like, give your head a shake. If you don't want to have kids now in Canada in 2018, you're never going to want to have kids. Because it's probably the easiest for you than it's almost ever been for most of the people that have gone before us. How many have asked that question? 
Why this time? Why was I born into this time? But it's not a question that is worth any brain space in asking. Because you can't do anything about when you were born. And the time in history that you were born into. All you can do is choose what to do with the time that you're in. Even great blessings, even wealth, even miracles are no guarantee that everything will be well. Just look at what might have happened after Jesus woke Lazarus up. Bad, being born into bad situations or times of history and circumstances sometimes lead to the greatest opportunities. Sometimes being born into the cushiest and most comfortable circumstances can lead to a lot of despair and heartache. So there's no point worrying about the circumstances one way or the other. The only thing that you can choose to do is choose to appropriately respond like Mary did in the midst of your circumstances. And so despite people's various responses to Lazarus, despite people's various responses to Jesus, despite even being chastised by Jesus' own disciples like Judas... Despite the time that she lived in under the oppression of the Romans, despite everything else going on around her, Mary chose to love Jesus extraordinarily and extravagantly, and that's all that mattered. Because true love has no price. If someone were to ask me if your wife or your children were in harm's way or in danger or captured, how much would you pay to rescue them? And it's a nonsense question because there is no amount that's too high. Take my life in place of their life. You, you can't set the bar high enough. See, it's not for lack of more discipline, lack of more seminars, lack of needing to hear more sermons that we struggle to follow Jesus. Often we struggle in our following of Jesus. It comes right down to just simply a lack of love. Many people choose to give things up for this time of Lent. And if you're giving things up just because everybody else is doing it or because you feel that you should do it or pressure and all that, it's very hard to stick with that discipline. But when you give something up because of love, not only does it become much easier, it even can become enjoyable. Because there's something even pleasurable about sacrificing for love. I have a great quote by the fiction writer Madeline Engel hanging in my office that I regularly look at, particularly when I just am feeling just 
that extra weakness, those extra vulnerability to sin. She writes, when loving God and enjoying Him forever begins to be dull, we are ripe for temptation. When we allow our interest in God and our walk with God to become dull and boring, temptation becomes very apt. Because then things start to look good. But getting back on track doesn't come with self-condemnation and more self-discipline, but it comes with the practice of loving God extravagantly, enjoying Him. And each of us needs to find out ways to do that. How do you love God extravagantly? For me, I go one area is going on missions trips. When I get to other cultures and different people with different needs and I can use my gifts and in different environments and out of different settings and that, it helps cultivate my walk with God. When people come up to me, there's always the Judases that, you know what, they're not really very effective or they're just Christian tourism or they're just, a, um, there might be a merit of truth to some of that, but at the end of the day, you know what? It's how I love God. It's how I love God, and it's what cultivates my relationship with God. I've started painting. Even if uh, people think it's just a waste of time and I should be doing something more effective with my time, or they look at some of the paintings I do and say, Steph, you really are not that talented. You know what? I don't care. It's my way of just loving God. I praise God with loud, heavy music, even when people think it is horrible. It's so funny, when I was, when I was young, uh, growing up, the kind of music that I listened to, my, my parents thought it was just horrible music. It's just terrible. Now that I'm a parent and I have kids, my kids think, Dad, your music is horrible. Everybody thinks my music. But you know what? I don't care. The, 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 the bands that I listen to, the, the, the Christian bands, the strong music they play and the loud, it helps me worship God. I have tattoos on my body of different Christian symbols. My leg and my back. And, and, and some people say, Steph, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't. Mar-. You know what? They are radical, crazy ways of me saying, I am with Jesus. I will mark my very body to identify myself as a follower of Jesus. And you know what? Some people wouldn't do that. Some people, at the end of the day, I don't care. Because they are reminders to me. And they are things that make me push myself out of the comfort zone of just regular things to help me love God more. I tithe on my gross salary. And people say to me, you don't have to do that. And first of all, if you don't even have to tithe, that's kind of an Old Testament concept. And come on, stuff, you don't have to tithe on your gross salary. You don't have to do that. But you know, at the end of the day, I don't care what other people do or how they tithe or how they use their money in that. This helps me risk living by faith and pouring my love out for Jesus. I love to read really tough books of theology about God. Some of them even, quote-unquote, unsafe. And people say to me, you know, why waste your time doing that? Why not just have a simple faith? 
But it's these things that help me delight in who God is. In fact, something this week I found quite appropriate to fit here. I was reading just a little article in a Focus on the Family magazine that we get. And this article was on husband-wife relationships. And it was talking about why husband-wife relationships can break down over time. And they were saying one of the reasons is that over time, we stop being fascinated by our spouse. Over time, we just become too familiar with them. We know what they like. We know what their habits are. We know what, um, what gets them upset and what they are enjoyable. They become predictable. We don't continue to learn and cultivate a relationship with them. And so things become boring. And you start to just kind of live your own lives. And it was talking about cultivating a fascination for your spouse. And I was just dealing with all this stuff in this passage with Mary and the pouring out. And I said, it's the same with God. We have to cultivate a fascination for God. How many of us, does God just get boring? Yeah, I've read the Bible. I know the stories. I know what he does. I, I know my theology. I've already pigeonholed myself into thinking like this. I know what God's like. I know all the rules. I know all And it just becomes boring. There's no more fascination to understand that God is so much more than we can understand. There's so much more to learn. There's so much more about him. There's so much more that we can never even begin to just dip our fingers into the pool. And yet we have the opportunity to do so. And so I try to cultivate those kinds of things simply because I want to love God more. And it doesn't matter what the Judases might say. Because at the end of it all, what matters is a passionate love for God. So these are just some of the ways that I Try to pour out my worship to God. Break that perfume jar and take the hair that I don't have and wipe Jesus' feet in just saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. I know this looks ridiculous. I know there are so many people in the world that don't get it and there are so many people in the church that think I'm a little crazy too, but I don't care because it's me and you, Jesus, and that's all that matters. And really, at the end of the day, it's not G Judas's words. Shouldn't that money be spent on the poor that matters? It's Jesus' words, leave her alone, that matters. When you hear Jesus say that about each and every one of us, they're mine. Leave them alone. If they want to love me like that, who are you to question them? I'm not perfect by any means. But I also have long ago stopped striving for perfection. It drives you crazy. Instead, all I'm trying to strive for now is love. Love. I want to love you more and more. And even in the midst of love, sometimes you make mistakes. But love is what matters. And love can't be calculated. Love's not always logical. It's not always proper. It's not always formal. It's not always acceptable. It's not always safe. But love's what matters. You can have all of those other things, but if you have not love, it means nothing.
So I may not be able to choose my time, my place, my circumstances, and my death, just like you can't choose any of those things either. But you can choose who you will love and how you will love them. That you can choose. And I want to be like Mary, who spared no expense in loving Jesus, bowing before him, clinging on to him, even wiping his feet with her hair. That's what matters. That's the choice Mary made. And it's the choice that I want to continue to make. Let's pray. Eternal and blessed God, whose very name is love, put your love into our hearts and help us to love you as you have first loved us. Help us to love you so much that we may fear nothing except to grieve you and that we may desire nothing except to please you. Help us to love you so much that we may obey you, not as a slave obeys his master, not even as a soldier obeys his commander, but as a loved one obeys their lover. Help us to love you so much that the worship of you may be to us neither a burden or a duty, but a joy and a delight. Help us to love you so much in answer to your love for us that we may say, love so amazing, so divine, that demands my life, my soul, my all. Help us, O lover, of the lives of people to love others as you love them. Help us to love them so much that we will always be ready to help and always quick to forgive. Help us to love others so much that hatred and bitterness may no longer have any place within our hearts. Help us to love others so much that everyone will know that we are your disciples because of how we love. And all of this we ask for your love's sake. Amen.